I love to be around people that I can smell have a heart to submit to the Bible. You can tell. You can tell. Are they suspicious of it? Do you read it and they say, but, 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 but. Their first response is not, oh, but, 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 but. So, some people are, are just deeply under the Bible as their authority. And others, they play with the Bible. They, they are governed by what they have inherited and not by the Scriptures. Now that doesn't settle what the Bible teaches. It doesn't make it any easier. In fact, it makes it harder because you want desperately to submit to what's really there and not just make up your own ideas. But I'll, I am what I am about these matters because I see them in the Bible. If I see 10,000 brilliant PhDs saying one thing and the Bible saying another thing, the Bible gets my vote. That's the way I'm going to be. And, and there's a simple way of saying the reason for it, namely... The Bible has lasted for 2,000 years plus and has stood against attack after attack after attack and has made it from generation to generation so that its vote is superior to 10,000 brilliant people who will be here today and gone tomorrow. And one of the great things about being 62 that's me, is that uh, you've seen a lot of things come and go. Dr. Harrison at Fuller used to say, and it was so wise, I didn't realize how wise at the time, he said, don't fret too much about liberal views because liberalism has a way of correcting itself. By its very definition, it must move beyond conserving the old. So if a liberal view says such and such is true about the Bible, which isn't in this generation, a generation later the young fellows writing PhDs as liberals have to disagree with that. Otherwise they're conservatives. <laughs> and so there is an amazingly self-correcting power within liberalism that means we don't have to invest most of our energies. Some people should invest significant energies. We don't have to invest most of our energies in quickly responding to every new thing that comes along. It's going to get responded to even from inside its own school. Number two, being faithful to Scripture is vastly more important than being faithful to Calvinism or Arminianism. I want, I want you to feel that flavor here. I, I don't want you to go away. Oh, they're doing this seminar at Bethlehem to, to make sure everybody believes Calvinism or make sure that this system gets pushed on people. It's just not the flavor. It's not the flavor at all. I want you to be radically critical of ideas that are not in the Bible. I want you to either see it in the scriptures or don't, don't embrace it. Number three, right thinking about what the Bible teaches about God and man and salvation really matters. 
Bad theology dishonors God and hurts people. Churches that sever the root of truth may flourish for a season, but will wither eventually or turn turn it into something besides a Christian church. Turn into something besides a Christian church. Not everybody believes that. It's one of my assumptions. Right doctrine honors God and blesses people. Wrong doctrine dishonors God and hurts people. Sometimes people play off love against theology, doing doctrine and say, don't spend time defending the gospel or arguing for true doctrine because it's not loving. What people need is relationships and loving. And, and my answer to that is, is indeed they do, and they're not mutually exclusive. But if these things go wrong, the foundations for these relationships collapse. So it hurts people when we think wrongly about God in the end. Number four, the work of the Holy Spirit and the pursuit of His work in prayer is essential for grasping the truth of Scripture. I'm not assuming that unaided human reason can come to this book and figure it out. I'm assuming that we need the Holy Spirit who inspired it to uh, cause our minds to be submissive to it. And we need to ask him through prayer that he would do that for us. We impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, Paul says, but taught by the Spirit. Interpreting spiritual truths to those who possess the Spirit. Interpreting spiritual truths to those who possess the Spirit. The unscriptural, the unspiritual man does not receive the gifts of the Spirit of God. So if you're unspiritual, if you don't have the Spirit holding sway in your life, you won't receive what God has to give you. They are folly, they'll be folly to Him. And He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual man judges all things or assesses all things but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And without the mind of Christ being given by the Spirit, we simply will reject the things that come to us in the Bible from God. Number five, thinking is essential for grasping biblical truth. So I've just said unaided reason without the Holy Spirit and without prayer aren't going to make any headway in truly grasping what the Bible means. But now I'm saying the other side, thinking is essential for grasping biblical truth. (laughs) I've just prepared my message for this weekend on 1 John, and I don't think I've had to think so hard as I had today for quite a long time. John, the first epistle of John is just mind-boggling. There are things in it that are so provocatively contrary to each other. And you know they're not contradictory. They're right there next to each other in the same verse. Verse 1 and 2 of chapter 2. 
And so you have to think and think. And I, I, I felt very deeply helped by the Lord in these last couple of days as I've worked on this issue for, for this weekend. Thinking is essential. Brethren, do not be children in your thinking. In evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. Or Second Timothy 2, think over what I say, for the Lord will grant you understanding. Think, Timothy, think over what I say. The Lord will grant you. So you think, and He gives. That's the paradox. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but victory belongs to the Lord. Brains are engaged in trying to understand the Bible, but understanding comes from the Lord. It's both and. It's not either or. Number six, assumption number six. God ordains that there be teachers in the church to help the body grasp and apply the truth of Scripture. So I, I just put that there so that you know why I'm standing here. Like why, why don't I just trust you to not come and, and see everything you need to see? Why are there pastors? Why are there elders? Why are there teachers? Why are there colleges and seminaries? And why are there small groups with leaders and not and, and no leaders? And what, what what's the deal with all this hierarchy of not of authority but of, of influence and teaching? And the answer is right here. He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, and some as elders, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints to do the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. So, God ordains that there should be teachers and that we should learn from each other. I lean on teachers every day. Most of them are books because I'm, I'm sort of the main teacher here, but I lean on other teachers every day. I'm leaning on John Stott and First John pretty regularly to see how did John see this. I want to I see how he saw it and how did law see it. Hebrews 13, 7, Remember those who led you who spoke the word of God to you and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. So I'm not God and I'm not the Bible. I am, I think, a God-called instructor, pastor, teacher, shepherd, elder, overseer at Bethlehem. And my responsibility is to feed the flock so that when the master comes, he will find me so doing. I love that parable. And Peter said, do you tell this parable for us or for everybody? And Jesus simply says, blessed is that servant who the master finds so doing when he comes. I just want to be found doing what I'm doing. And 
I'm not the Bible and I'm not God. I'm a pointer to texts and an explainer of texts. And I'm praying that the Holy Spirit would illumine those texts so that you would see for yourself what's really there. Number seven, like all fallen, finite human people, you and I see in a mirror dimly. We do not claim to be perfect in what we know. We do not claim to know all that can be known, nor do we claim to see what we know more clearly than others. They see it. But we do say with Paul, since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what was been, has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we speak. Though we do not know everything there is to know, and though we do not know anything perfectly, yet we do know many things truly and confidently because of God's revelation and His Spirit. And before I give you a couple of examples, I'm, I'm reacting here today to the postmodern skepticism of the ability to know anything and the accusation that if you presume to say you know something, you're arrogant. Um, let me give you a take on that arrogance piece. I think the opposite is the case. That is, a person who says, I believe there is objective reality here, propositional truth that two minds looking at can see and understand and decide to submit to or not. I think that's what's here. If you say, I think that's arrogant to presume that you can see what's here, claim that you see it, and then tell another person they're wrong because they're not seeing it. I think that's arrogant. Contemplate the alternative. The alternative would be that this either doesn't offer objective, concrete, propositional reality, or you can't really know it and have access to it, then what's left for you to do? What's left for you to do is what you jolly well please. That's not humble. That's a subtle warranting of doing your own thing. And it's couched in the language of great humility. Like, I don't know what the Bible says, and I don't think the Bible says anything that we can all see and then put ourselves under and say this is true and that's not true. All that sounds like such humble talk. It's not humble talk. It's arrogant talk. Because basically, when you close the Bible and then turn around and go home to your television and your video games and your family, how do you make your choices? You do what you feel like doing. You don't submit yourself to anything outside yourself because you don't think it's there to be submitted to. You become increasingly God in a postmodern, relativistic, non-propositional world. The person who says, it's here, I will find it 
by God's help, and I will get myself under it and submit to it, and I will make myself vulnerable to other people who say, you missed it, that's not what it says, so that you can change your mind and submit to the truth. All that is a humble framework toward life that keeps you underneath the Bible instead of putting you over the Bible where you just do your own thing. So it's not surprising then that we find things like this in the New Testament. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law. We know that when a person... When he appears, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, etc. And that's a very short list. All I did was enter we know into my concordance and there they were. Finally, number eight. Nevertheless, there remain things that God has not chosen to reveal to us. And we must sometimes be content with mystery. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. There are secret things that simply are not ours to know. Now... How do you know when you're dealing with one of those? You give it your best shot. And you read those who are smarter than you and gave it their best shot. And, and if you realize they haven't found it, then you can rest and say, well, perhaps it's not meant to be found. God hasn't given it to us. So we'll see if we run into any of those. Yes, there are. I have two or three that are very foundational that I do not have answers for. And I simply live with the mystery of what I don't know. So that's the end of assumptions. And now we're on historical background. This is very brief historical background. I just want to give you the flavor uh, of an overview of, of where this talk, Calvinism, came from. John Calvin the great reformer of Geneva and author of the Institutes of the Christian Religion, died in 1564. The Dutch theologian Jacobus Arminius, so these are the two origin, these are the two guys. Calvinism is named after John Calvin, Arminianism is named after Arminius, and these are the two alternative systems that are usually contrasted. The Dutch theologian Jacob Arminius uh, was born in 1560 and died in 1609. He came to disagree with the key tenets of Calvinist doctrine. In the early 1600s, a controversy arose, especially in Holland, between the Arminians and Calvinists, the groups who bore the name of the person who most powerfully expressed their understanding of Scripture. In 1610, the Arminians presented five doctrinal positions called the Remonstrance to the state authorities in Holland. 
These expressed the key areas where they disagreed with the Calvinists. From November 13, 1618 to May 9 of 1619, the Calvinists came together in the Synod of Dort to answer these five disputed points. And their answers came to be called the Canons of Dort. These are the original expression of the five points of Calvinism. Thus, the five points were not asserted by Calvinists as a summary of their doctrine. So it didn't start with Calvinists saying, we have tulip, we have five points, and that's what we believe. It didn't start that way at all. It started with a huge, big, rich, complete body of, of church doctrine, and parts of it were disputed with by the remonstrants. And in answering those disputes, they addressed those five things, and that's how it got going. They were the Calvinist response to the Armenian remonstrants who chose these five points with which to disagree. Seven. Nevertheless, these five points are at the very heart of how we understand God and sin and grace and atonement and salvation and all the things that are touched by these great realities. In short, the five points are vital to understand and have a bearing on all of life and ministry. Then last, somewhere along the way, and I don't know the history of this well enough to assign a location, somewhere along the way, the Calvinistic view of five points came to be summarized under the acronym TULIP. T, total depravity. U, unconditional election. L, limited atonement. I, irresistible grace. And P, perseverance of the saints, which is what we're going to turn to in the rest of our time and deal with those five things. Just a note here. A person may embrace these five points because they are biblical while not embracing other things that John Calvin and the Dutch Reformed Church endorsed. For example, one may embrace believers' baptism and renounce the idea of a state church. So there would be two differences that would distinguish us, say, from the Calvinists of Calvin's day. Now a summary of the differences between these two theologies. So the first point is um, total depravity. What's the difference between Calvinism and Arminianism? So we're going we're to lay out the differences here, and then we're going to step back and go to the scriptures in the next uh, while and see the foundations for both of them. Calvinism, people are so depraved and rebellious that they are unable to trust God without his special work of grace to change their hearts so that they necessarily and willingly believe. I'll I'll read the Arminianism difference and then come back and comment on those two, two words and why they're so important. 
So we're so depraved. Total depravity means we're so depraved and rebellious that we're unable to trust God without his special work. We, we don't like God. We resist God. We rebel against God. And in this rebellion, we cannot bring ourselves to submit to him, trust him, love him. Arminianism says people are depraved and corrupt, but are able to provide the decisive impulse to trust God with the general divine assistance that he gives to all people. Now, let me explain. Arminianism is not Pelagianism. Pelagianism was the view that you don't need any divine assistance for your will to produce a right response to God. Just will it and you can do it. And that was condemned as heresy from early on and has always been. This would be a modified version of that because virtually all Arminians, Wesley, Arminius, have said nobody can respond properly to God without grace, without the assistance of grace, prevenient grace, grace coming before. But here's the difference. I mean, that's what Calvinists believe also. Here's the difference. Calvinists believe that we're, we're so depraved that when that grace and assistance comes, it won't make us or bring us to faith. Nobody will come to faith unless there is a decisive impulse. People are depraved and corrupt but are able to provide, those people are able to provide the decisive, the decisive impulse. So out of your own free will, you can, once you've been given divine enablement, you provide the decisive, key word, you make the final, ultimate, decisive difference, not God, in whether or not you uh, use the grace that you have been given in order to trust Christ. Whereas Calvinism says people are so depraved and rebellious that they're unable to trust God without a special work of grace to change their hearts so that they necessarily and willingly believe. In other words, if this grace doesn't compel them which is why we're going to get to irresistible grace. Compel them to believe. They won't believe. There's the difference. It's very nuanced. I don't want to, I don't want to put any straw men here. I don't want to paint Arminianism in a, a worse light than it, it should be. And so it's, it's a nuanced difference here. Arminians do not say you can make your way to God without grace. But they do say that grace helps everybody. And then what makes the difference in who comes to Christ and who doesn't is ultimately and decisively you and not God. That's, that's the difference. Whereas Calvinists would say grace comes and helps. And what makes the ultimate decisive difference between whether or not you believe is God and not you. 
That's number one, depravity. Number two, election. Calvinism says God has chosen unconditionally whom he will bring to faith and salvation. Arminianism says God has chosen to bring to salvation all whose faith he foresaw but did not decisively bring about. So in Arminianism, election is based on the foreknowledge of self-wrought faith, that is, decisively self-wrought. Not that there's no grace working, but that the decisive impulse is from you. And so God doesn't, before the foundation of the world, choose who will believe. He rather foresees who will believe on the basis of their own decisive free will and then says, those are the chosen ones. That's the difference at the point of election. Third, the atonement. This one's a little bit tricky. In the, in the death of Christ, God provided a sufficient atonement for all. This is Calvinism. Sufficient atonement for all, all human beings. But designed, intended, purposed, that it be effective for the elect, meaning that it purchased for them the new covenant promises that God would work in his people the grace of faith and perseverance. So Calvinists believe that in the atonement God purchased for the elect their own faith. So the cross contains in it a definite work that brings about the salvation of the elect. Arminians, on the other hand, would say this. In the death of Christ, God provided a sufficient atonement for all, agreed, and designed that it become effective by virtue of faith. In other words, it doesn't effect faith. Faith makes it effective. Meaning that the faith itself is not a gift purchased by the cross, but the human means of obtaining the gift of purchased forgiveness. That's complicated. And probably there's no point in lingering over it now until we deal with it next week in some great detail on the basis of texts rather than just trying to explain it in abstract here. But the gist of it is the... I'll put it like this. The way I find it very helpful to talk about the atonement between a Calvinist and Armenian is that almost any Armenian I've ever talked to who wants to explain in a positive way what they understand in Christ achieved, they'll say, Christ died for all men such that whoever believes his death covers their sins. To that, I totally agree. Christ died for all men such that 
Whoever believes, their sins are covered. No argument. The, the difference arises here. That's as much as the Armenian wants to say about the design of the atonement. Whereas the Calvinist says, more happened in the atonement. Not less than that, but more. Namely, that God not only designed to make forgiveness available for all who would believe, but he designed in the cross to achieve faith for the elect. He, he not only designed that whosoever will may come through the cross, but he had a bride and he paid for his bride. A kind of dowry, you might say. More on that later. Number four, irresistible grace or the new birth. Calvinism says the new birth or grace is God's work of renewal in our hearts which necessarily brings about the act of saving faith. And Arminianism says the new birth is God's work of renewal in our hearts in response to our act of saving faith. So prevenient grace is not the new birth that makes all people able, if they would, to believe. It takes you so far, then it stops, and now God waits and watches, and you, by your decisive power of free will, believe. And if you believe, then you are born again. And I've been arguing for 13 weeks in our series on the new birth at Bethlehem, that the opposite is the case. Namely, that the new birth is precisely what causes faith. 1 John 5, 1. Everyone who has been born of God believes. Or everyone who believes has been born of God. Finally, number five. Perseverance. Calvinism says God works infallibly to preserve in faith all who are truly born again so that none is ever lost. And Arminianism says God works to preserve his people but does not always prevent some who were born again from falling away to destruction. If people ask me, where does your assurance lie that you will last to the end and be saved, that you'll be a believer for the rest of your life? My answer is not my will. I mean, just ask yourself the question, why should you wake up believing in the morning? Most of you right now are believing. If somebody forced you to choose, you'd say, Christ is my Lord, my Savior. I trust Him. I stake my life on Him. Why should it be that way tomorrow morning? Why shouldn't you get up tomorrow morning and, and realize, I don't believe that anymore at all. I don't want to yield to Him as Lord. I don't want to submit to Him. I, I, don't, I don't want to embrace Him as my Savior. Why? Why? If you say that the, the ultimate answer to that is your sovereign free will, you're standing on very shaky ground. The ultimate answer to that question is, 
God is faithful, and he who began a good work in you will complete it under the day of Christ. God's faithfulness is the only hope that tomorrow morning I'm going to be a believer like I was this morning. It's a very comforting thought. It's a very fragile thought. That is, I know that I am not in charge. And I'm so glad I'm not in charge because I know my will is so fickle. You know, you get a little sick and all kinds of things happen to your emotions. Relationship starts to have trouble and your emotions go up and down and and things shift around and, oh my goodness, our hearts are fickle. So that's a summary of Calvinism and Arminianism. Six arguments for irresistible grace. I'll tell you why I start with I instead of T. I think that's where most people start in life. You got you all who are believers got saved somewhere along the way. Something happened. And my guess is that most of you would feel extremely uncomfortable, no matter what your theology is. You'd feel extremely uncomfortable saying, I did that. I was the decisive cause of my conversion. So you stand before God in heaven and he asks you, so now why are you here? And you say, because I have believed in your son and I have thrown myself on him for mercy and I have counted on his death for my forgiveness and his life for my righteousness. That's my only hope. And the father will smile and say, that's exactly the right answer. And he might say, and why did you do that? And not your cousin that I strove with for so long in so many ways. And at that point, I don't think you're going to want to say, I'm smarter, or I'm more spiritual, or I was wiser, or you you just, you're, you're going to put your hand over your mouth and you're going to say, Grace. Grace, inexplicable grace, why you humbled me, broke me, brought me down, shut my mouth, knocked me off my horse. Most people start here. They get confronted by God and he changes them. And then they spend the rest of their lives trying to figure out what happened. (laughs) And that's where we are tonight. We're, We're trying to figure out what happened to us because we want to give him all the proper credit and glory we want to understand our conversion you didn't you didn't understand how depraved you were before you got saved you had a little inkling little inkling that you were a sinner needed a savior and then God opened your eyes and and you embraced Christ as your Lord and Savior and treasure and now you're devoting from time to trying to know who you are and what he's done for you. and So I'm starting where 
where I started. Preliminary, before I give you the arguments, I got to respond to an argument, I mean an opposition, um, objection. Grace can be resisted. I mean, the first thing people have said to me over the years is, if you believe in irresistible grace, I said, yes. I said, well, how can you believe in irresistible grace? Of course it can be resisted. And then they point to these verses, right? You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears have always been resisting the Holy Spirit, You're doing just as your fathers did. So how can you even talk in terms of irresistible grace when the Bible says right there that, that, that it's resisted, the Holy Spirit can be resisted? Or Ephesians 4.30, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed. So you can grieve the Holy Spirit? You can resist Him? You can grieve Him? Or... 1 Thessalonians 5.19 Do not quench the Spirit. You can quench the Spirit. Romans 10.21 But as for Israel, he says, All day long have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. So here's God stretching out his hands to a disobedient and, and obstinate people. That doesn't sound irresistible. Does it? So, what do we mean by calling grace irresistible? We don't mean it can't be resisted. We mean that as soon as God chooses, He can overcome your resistance. That's all we mean. I mean, the only reason everybody's not a Christian is because they can resist God. And the only reason anybody is a Christian is because he overcame that resistance when he chose. He can suffer you to resist him, but he's God. As soon as he wants, bang, he can overcome that resistance. So don't let anybody, you know, boggle you by saying, oh, there's no point in believing in irresistible grace because the Bible says you can resist. Well, of course you can resist. You just can't resist any longer than he wants you to. And then he overcomes your resistance, and that's why we're saved. That's what irresistible grace teaches. And here's the, here's the biblical foundations for it. Argument number one. Faith and repentance are a gift of God. Faith and repentance are a gift of God. So these are different arguments for why I believe in grace being able to triumph over my resistance and thus become irresistible. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. God is very eager to strip us some boasting. So salvation and faith here are called the gift of God. Romans twelve, three. Through the grace that, is, uh, through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each the measure of faith. Or Second Timothy two twenty four. This one had a huge 
effect on me when I saw it years ago because it combined what we usually separate, namely human effort to change somebody and divine decisive effort to change them. The Lord's bondservant, this could be any of you wanting very much to bring somebody out of their bondage to sin. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach. So you're teaching and you're kind and you're not quarreling. Patient when wronged, patient when wronged. Gentleness, correcting, you are being bold enough to correct those who are in opposition. Now here's the change, here's the shift. If, perhaps, God may grant them, here's the gift, may grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. So we do our part. That's our part right there. And then perhaps, perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. So I believe in, I believe in irresistible grace because this verse teaches that when I've done all that I can do, whether somebody repents depends on whether God grants them repentance. Repentance is a gift. We'll skip those next texts and go to uh, three. Take, go to argument number two. We cannot come to Christ unless God draws us. John six forty four. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. I remember showing that to a student at Bethel about 30 years ago when I was a teacher there. And he, he quoted me chapter 12 and said, If I be lifted up, I will draw all to myself. In other words, this applies to everybody. I wonder how you would respond to that. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and if I be lifted up, I will draw all to myself. Here's the problem. This is verse 44. If you drop down, just keep reading. You, you, you encounter this. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. He knew it was who would betray him. And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you, No one can come to me unless it was granted to him from the Father. For this reason he knew who it was who would betray him. 
And for this reason, he said, nobody can come. This is not everybody. Judas did not come because he was not given to come. His rebellion and his deep-seated opposition to Jesus was not overcome and had to be overcome. That's the meaning of verse 65. Argument number three. God's effectual calling overcomes resistance to the gospel. God's effectual calling overcomes resistance to the gospel. Indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness, But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now think about that with me for just a moment. A call is going out to everybody, Jews and Greeks. Paul is saying, hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. Christ came into the world to die for sinners. Whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. That's a a general call from Billy Graham or Paul or me or, or anybody or you when you share in a small group. The call goes out to everybody, whosoever will, come. And among those who hear, there are those who call what you just said a stumbling block. And there are those who call what you just said foolishness. They're not coming. They're not believing. They think it's stupid. But there's another group. And they're made up of both Jews and Greeks. And they come. Because for them, Christ becomes the power of God and the wisdom of God. So he's not foolish. He's wisdom. He's not a stumbling block. He's power. And what made the difference? And the answer is, those who are called. Well, I thought everybody was called. Well, they were, in the general sense. But this text clearly teaches there is a calling that makes all the difference in the world as to whether we regard Christ as foolish or regard Christ as wisdom. If you're called, you live. The calling here is the calling of Lazarus out of the tomb. Lazarus, come forth. So here you are, and on one day, I was just watching a a video of of the conversion of C.S. Lewis. You may remember that story. It was very progressive moving from atheism to theism to kind of vague Christianity but Jesus son of God dying for the world believing and it pictured him I thought he was on a bus I remember reading uh, reading uh, Surprised by Joy and that he got on a bus going to a zoo and he says he got on the bus an unbeliever and he got off the bus believing 
But this video showed him in a sidecar of a motorcycle. I said, does bus mean something different in Britain? <laughs> but the point there is, Lewis could not explain what happened. His, his resistance totally collapsed. He, he was looking at Christ, and it was just foolish. It was mythological. It was what all the myths said, the dying and rising God and all that stuff. And just, no way. And a half an hour later, he gets off the bus or out of the sidecar, and he realizes, I'm believing. I believe it. I believe it now. Well, what happened to him was that God called him. To those who are called, it is the power of God. God said, somewhere along that road, he said, Lazarus, live. Lewis, see. And, and in here, the eyes of his hearts, eyes of his heart embraced the truth. That's argument number three. Argument number four. The new birth enables us to receive Christ. These are all arguments for why grace is irresistible. And here we're talking from the new birth, and we've already mentioned this, so I'll just pass over it quickly with First John five one. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Whoever believes, literally, perfect tense, has been born of God. I think that's crystal clear that the reason you believe is because you have been born again, not the other way around. Argument number five. The new covenant promise promises grace that will triumph over our resistance. We were working on this one in preaching class yesterday. Deuteronomy 5.29 Oh, that they had such a mind as always, as this always, to fear me. And it's literally, who will give them such a heart to fear me and to keep all my commandments, that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. The text guys who were in that class yesterday, and I was fumbling around trying to find the other text. It's uh, it's this one here, Deuteronomy twenty nine two through four. Moses summoned all Israel and said to them. You have seen all the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and all his servants and all his land. The great trials which your eyes have seen, those great signs and wonders. Yet to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. So when he says, who, who will give you such a heart? The answer is, it's going to be the Lord, and here it hasn't happened yet in Deuteronomy 29, 2-4. The Lord has not given you a heart to know or eyes to see. He hasn't overcome your resistance. And how will that ever be changed? This new covenant promise. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God. How are you ever going to come to love the Lord your God? 
He's going to circumcise your heart. He's going to change your heart. He's going to make it possible for you to love God. Or... Let's go to this one. I will make... This is Jeremiah thirty-two forty. I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good and I will put the fear of me in their hearts. That's the same as circumcising their hearts so they love me. I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. Now that's a great text for perseverance, but that's not the doctrine we're on right now. We're on irresistible grace. I will put the fear of me in their hearts. Or Ezekiel eleven nineteen. I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them. I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them and then they will be my people and I will be their God. So there's coming a new covenant day, Ezekiel and Jeremiah say, in which God will act decisively so that we... Stop rebelling against him. Last argument. Argument number six. Who then can resist his will? This is a long passage from Romans 9. It might be helpful just to drop down and deal with verse 18 following. So then... He has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? In other words, the perception of this listener is that such a statement removes personal accountability. Why does he still find fault? Because you just said nobody can resist his will. Back up to verse 16. So then it does not depend on man who wills or man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Verse 20. On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this? Will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another vessel for common use? What if God... That's not there. That's why it's crossed out. Some versions have though. What if God, willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon the vessels of his mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. So that's one of the strong... I, when, when I was coming to the end of my time at Bethel in the fall of 1979, um, I... No, no, that's not quite right. I had... Um, been struggling for six years in class after class with these things. I would 
It didn't matter what course I was teaching, students always raised their hand and said, well, how can that be? Or how can that be? Because this issue of the sovereignty of God comes up everywhere, just everywhere in the Bible. So every class, it became an issue. And I would generally wind up my argument at this passage of Scripture, because it's the one who consumed me when I was in seminary. Romans 9 is like a tiger going around eating freewheelers like me, I wrote in the blue book. And this was the section that consumed me. I couldn't, I couldn't, I had to say either I'm giving up on the Bible or I'm embracing the God of this passage. And uh, they would always say, oh, that doesn't mean that. That's not referring to individuals. That's corporate. That's, uh, they had all kinds of arguments that they learned in other classes. <laughs> and, and I would say, huh, that's not the way I see it. And it came to a point where I said, I just got to settle this for myself, and I got to have something I can put in people's hands. And so I asked for a sabbatical after six years at, at Bethel, and uh, Dr. Brushaber, who was then the dean, now he's been the president for all these years, uh, mercifully granted me a, a sabbatical. And so from, uh, uh, I forget the exact timing, most of, of 1979, I was on sabbatical, and all I did was study Romans 9. And I wrote the book, The Justification of God, which is a book on Romans 9, and settled it for myself. What does this passage really mean? And I do believe it means what it seems to say, namely that individuals are intended here, and that God is absolutely sovereign over them. And so I wrote it, but the amazing thing is that I'm standing here because during those months, the Lord kept saying out of Romans 9, uh, I will not just be analyzed, I will not just be explained, I will be proclaimed, and I want you to be a preacher, not a teacher. And so I resigned. I mean, the, the result of Romans 9 and the result of the sabbatical was that I handed in my resignation in uh, in December of seventy nine, and went to the Baptist General Conference and said, "I want to I want to preach. Would you help me find a church?" And and they called Marvin Anderson, the chairman of the committee down at Bethlehem, and and Bethlehem called me, and that was that. And I've been there ever since. So Romans nine has a huge history for me. It has a huge history from nineteen sixty eight, and it has a huge history from nineteen seventy nine in bringing me to the key points of my, my life. So all of those are six arguments for why I believe that when God pleases, He overcomes our resistance. And that's the only reason anybody gets saved. So let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your great power over our lives where would we be if you didn't save us from our sin if you didn't open our eyes when we were blind and if you didn't overcome all of our depravity and rebellion and didn't do it every day and so I praise you and bless you I pray that we would be faithful to your word now that you grant us good restful healing sleep tonight and bring us back together Tomorrow morning, in Jesus' name, amen.